Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, the Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, even Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark? Remember those? Short bits of horror. Those were terrific shows, but they've come and they've gone. Some have endured reboots or retries that have had some degree of success. But is there anything like that now? I've come across Crypt TV on YouTube, and I think that it fits the bill. I've linked to The Thing in the Apartment, Chapter 1, in the show notes, and I recommend that you give the folks at Crypt TV a go. They appear to be able to crank out several horror shorts a week that run somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 12 minutes, which is its own kind of accomplishment. I've taken in a few of them, and I intend to get through their entire catalog, which currently isn't as a daunting task as for those enduring souls who have found Tales of Terrify recently and are undertaking the effort of listening to our entire back catalog. Check it out. They've got a few of their videos with a few million views, and those popular ones might be good to cherry-pick if you want to check out a few before going into the deep dive that I intend to do. Also, and this may be of no consequence, but it appears that their channel was created Christmas Day three years ago. I wonder what caused someone to decide that that day, Christmas Day, was the day to begin a short film YouTube channel that revolves around horror. I let my mind run with that. Our first story of the night comes to us from S.C. Hayden, whose fiction has appeared in magazines and anthologies published by Comet Press, Dark Fuse Magazine, Nightscape Press, Underground Voices, and many more. He is the author of the novel Kill Your Idols and the collection Rusty Nails, Broken Glass. Follow him at www.schayden.com. Link will be in the show notes. Listen with me to S.C. Hayden's Happy Sunshine Music, originally published in Dirge Publications, LLC. 
2015. Can you tell the court the name of the record? Yes. Well? Happy Sunshine Music. To clarify, that was Happy Sunshine Music? Yes. A snicker from the jury box. That annoyed him. It was a murder trial, after all. His murder trial. A murder trial was supposed to be serious business. Admittedly, given the circumstances, it was an ironic title. But a little decorum wasn't too much to ask, was it? And where did you get the record, Mr. Veeper? Edmund glanced at the stenographer. He knew she was typing his name, Veeper. But it didn't matter. To the world he was, and always would be known as Edmund Creeper. The tabloids had seen to that. Steady Ray's final vinyl was a little hole in the wall underneath a burger joint on 5th and Main. It was generally unknown to the music-buying public, but to old record junkies like him it was an oasis. Edmund had been going there for years. He'd found the record in a box of old 7-inch 45s. The first thing that jumped out at him was the cover art. A black-and-white image of a naked woman lying on the street. She had a black slash across her eyes, and her head was twisted in a way that couldn't possibly be compatible with life. If pressed, Edmund would guess it was a leaked crime scene photo. The record looked like it dated from the 70s. Album art like that definitely wasn't typical in that decade. Even by today's standards, it was pretty grim and belied the decidedly cheery title, Happy Sunshine Music. Besides that record, Edmund scored some old Trojan label upsetters and a Saturn label Sun Ra worth to the right collector considerably more than he'd paid. Old records weren't just a hobby. There was money to be made if you knew what you were doing. He'd once picked up a sleeveless Hendrix Axis Bold as Love Mono 45 for 25 cents at a yard sale and turned it around for just shy of $600. As soon as he got back to his apartment, Edmund called Rigby. A fellow beat junkie, Rigby was always ready to check out some new vinyl. Rigby dropped by Edmund's sixth-floor walk-up later that day and predictably geeked out over happy sunshine music as soon as he saw it. Whoa, that's a wild cover. I've never seen anything like it. And what kind of name is happy sunshine music? I don't know. I've never heard of it. Well, let's give it a whirl. When they dropped the needle, a burst of static filled the apartment, followed by a group of children singing a cappella. Happy, happy sunshine music. Happy faces filled with joy. Everyone loves sunshine music, every girl and every boy. A chorus repeated again and again. Edmund moved the needle along. No change. The second side was the same as the first. Creepy kids singing, screaming, really, the same words over and over without pause or interruption or musical accompaniment of any kind. What the fuck is that all about? Rigby said. Don't know, but I only paid a buck for it, so screw it. Later, 
After admiring the Sun Ra score and grooving out to some early Lee Perry, they decided to give Happy Sunshine Music another listen. This time, rather than creepy kids singing, they heard the most indescribably lovely violin music. What the hell? Ain't that the damnedest thing? The lights flickered, then went out. But Edmund and Rigby had no difficulty seeing each other. Somehow, the darkness itself was luminous. The walls seemed to ooze their own light, like those UV posters Edmund had liked so much when he was younger. Rigby laughed out loud. His laugh was full and bright and beautiful. It filled the room and bounced off the walls and ceiling and poured through the open window into the deepening dusk. Edmund laughed, too, harder than he'd ever laughed before. He laughed until his sides hurt. He laughed until he cried. Then he laughed some more. "'Watch this,' Rigby said, pulling his clothes off. "'I'm a deer!' Naked, Rigby held his fingers over his head like antlers and pranced around the room. It was easily the funniest thing Edmund had ever seen. "'I'm a hunter,' Edmund said, pretending to shoot arrows from an invisible bow." In retrospect, that should have been a tip-off, that things were getting strange. But at the time, it just seemed like a fun thing to do. Rigby leapt up onto Edmund's fold-out bed and started bouncing. "'I am a god!' Rigby shouted. "'I am blinding light, and I am deafening sound. I am pain, and I am cool, flowing water.' "'Then I am a hunter of gods,' Edmund said." I will unmake what has been made. I will bite the hand that feeds. I seek no order, natural or other. Edmund pulled his own clothes off, tackled Rigby, then grabbed his horns and twisted his head. He hadn't noticed the horns before. But at some point, Rigby had sprouted a fine set of antlers. Edmund wrenched harder. Rigby brayed and snorted and bucked, but Edmund held fast. Tiny points of colored light rained and trilled around them, like a thousand fireflies falling to earth, like a million miniature stars shaken from the firmament. The lights exploded on the mattress and bled across their backs. Watching the dancing shadows cast on the wall, Edmund saw that Rigby had transformed fully into a deer, a great bearded stag. The fold-out bed bounced beneath them, and the turntable's arms skipped off of happy sunshine music. When the music stopped, Edmund and Rigby were plunged into semi-darkness. The half-light of the benighted city streamed in through the open window. They were naked and covered in sweat. Rigby was no longer a stag, but they had most certainly been rutting. The next few minutes passed in awkward silence as they dressed, and Rigby exited the apartment without looking back. "'What was your relationship with Miss Bianca Popenko?' The question seemed to come out of the ether. Edmund was aware that he'd been answering questions for more than an hour, but he couldn't remember what had been asked or what he had answered. It was as though he'd been on autopilot. "'Excuse me?' Miss Bianca Popenko, what was your relationship with her? She was my neighbor, 
Edmund's stomach churned at the mention of her name. He didn't like to think about her or about what he'd done to her. But it wasn't my fault, he told himself. Edmund was no angel. He'd stolen things and cheated people, and lived what some might call a self-centered lifestyle. But he wasn't a killer. At least not before. Hunched over the turntable, Edmund inspected happy sunshine music with a magnifying glass. He was looking for parallel grooves, capable of playing hidden tracks, depending on where the stylus was placed. With a great deal of trepidation, Edmund powered the turntable and placed the needle just forward of the first cut. After the static hiss, he heard the sound of children crying, as though someone had recorded a nursery full of crying babies. The sound sped up and slowed down intermittently, and the effect was positively nauseating. He brought the needle ahead five grooves and dropped it again. A woman groaned in what was either pain or pleasure or both, while a little girl giggled in the background. There was a sick, wet smacking sound, like a bat hitting a head of cabbage over and over, and beneath that, almost imperceptibly, someone chanted in a language that sounded like German, but wasn't. Edmund shivered. The moaning choked off suddenly, the rhythmic smacking quickened, and the little girl started to cry. Edmund lifted the needle. He simply couldn't listen any longer. In fact, smashing the record into a hundred pieces was looking increasingly appealing. His thoughts were interrupted by a knock on the door. Edmund left happy sunshine music spinning needleless on the turntable and went to answer. Shifting her weight from foot to foot, his neighbor Bianca stood in the hallway looking sheepish and self-conscious. "'Hi, Edmund,' she said. "'I'm such a goof. I was changing the curtains, and I knocked a picture off the wall. The nail came out and everything. Do you think you could help me?' When she'd first moved into the building, Edmund had assumed she was the type of girl who ignored people like him, but he soon realized that wasn't the case at all. Bianca was lissome and lovely, but also friendly, down-to-earth and approachable. And if she occasionally took advantage of his philanthropic nature and aptitude for minor home maintenance, so what? Of course, come on in. I'll just grab a hammer. Edmund ushered her inside and set her up with a glass of iced tea before rummaging in his closet. In truth, he was thankful for the distraction. He really didn't want to think about happy sunshine music. "'What's this?' Bianca called. "'What now?' Just as he located his claw hammer, he heard a burst of static, followed by the sound of violins. Shit. The lights flickered, then went out. Bianca laughed. At best, Edmund's memory of what transpired after that was patchy. He knew they'd made love. That much he remembered, although making love probably wasn't the best term to describe it. Later at some point, Bianca said that she was hungry. He remembered chasing a pig around the apartment with the hammer. He didn't know where the pig had come from, but he was determined to catch it and gut it and cook it up for her. He remembered leaping onto the pig's back and beating it with the hammer. He remembered the pig, kicking and bucking and thrashing and scratching the hardwood floor with its hooves. 
He remembered wrestling with the pig and slipping in its blood. And he remembered the pig squealing. In fact, he would never forget that squealing for as long as he lived. In all the commotion, he'd lost track of Bianca, so he decided to eat the pig by himself. He didn't bother gutting it or roasting it. He just hacked out hunks of flesh with the hammer's claw and ate them raw. It was messy, but it worked. Edmund ate until he vomited, and then he ate some more. When the record finally stopped, he saw what he was eating. It wasn't a pig. Shortly after that, a police officer knocked on the door. A neighbor had called about the noise. The judge was in her mid-fifties and possessed the quiet, graceful bearing of someone who knows and accepts her own worth, yet does so without arrogance or hauteur. Edmund had already forgotten her name, but he liked her. He tried to catch her eye, but she was watching the prosecuting attorney place a blue rectangular plastic box on the table. He opened it. Inside the box was a small forty-five RPM record player. Edmund's throat went dry. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Edmund Veeper claims he was compelled to murder and cannibalize Miss Bianca Popenko. He does not deny the heinous charges, yet he maintains his innocence. Why? How? Well, Mr. Veeper would have us believe that the music on this record made him do it. For the benefit of the jury, the attorney held the record in the air above his head. The record sleeve, Edmund noticed, was different. A big yellow smiley face had replaced the black-and-white photo of the girl lying dead in the road. The name, however, was still the same. Happy Sunshine Music. We listened to the record. It's nothing more than tambourines and xylophones and people laughing. Many faces, Edmund thought. But in the interest of transparency, the attorney continued, we would like to play the record for the court. Edmund wanted to say something, but he couldn't speak. The attorney placed happy sunshine music on the turntable. When the needle dropped, a burst of static filled the air, followed by the sweet sound of violins. Laughter erupted from the jury box. The judge looked at her gavel like she'd never seen it before. She hefted its weight, turned it from side to side, then smacked the business end onto the palm of her open hand. It made a sound like raw steak hitting a cutting board. Edmund wondered if she was naked underneath the black robe she was wearing. He was suddenly certain that she was. Naked, sweaty, and delicious. A court officer fingered his revolver in its braided leather holster. The lights in the courtroom flickered and then went out. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. That was S.C. Hayden's Happy Sunshine Music as read by Dan Grzynski. Dan lives in Tully, New York, near Syracuse, and earns his living bending the unseen forces of nature to his will as a broadcast engineer. He's been a recording engineer, electronics technician, repairer of broken things, and regularly reads for LibriVox.org. Thank you, Dan. And now we return to Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, and before we hear the third and final installment of this classic story, a little more about the author. The term Kafkaesque is used to describe concepts and situations reminiscent of his work, particularly the trial and the metamorphosis. Examples include instances in which bureaucracies overpower people, often in surreal, nightmarish milieu, which evokes feelings of senselessness, disorientation, and helplessness. Characters in a Kafkaesque setting often lack a clear course of action to escape a labyrinthian situation. Kafkaesque elements often appear in existential works, but the term has transcended the literary realm to apply to real-life occurrences and situations that are incomprehensibly complex, bizarre, or illogical. Numerous films and television works have been described as Kafkaesque, and the style is particularly prominent in dystopian science fiction. However, with common usage, the term has become so ubiquitous that Kafka scholars note it's often misused. More accurately, then, according to author Ben Marcus, paraphrased in What It Means to Be Kafkaesque by Joe Fassler in The Atlantic, Kafka's quintessential qualities are affecting use of language, a setting that straddles fantasy and reality, and a sense of striving even in the face of bleakness, hopelessly and full of hope. 
Here comes part three of Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Three. No one dared to remove the apple lodged in Gregor's flesh, so it remained there as a visible reminder of his injury. He had suffered it there for more than a month, and his condition seemed serious enough to remind even his father that Gregor, despite his current sad and revolting form, was a family member who could not be treated as an enemy. On the contrary, as a family there was a duty to swallow any revulsion for him and be patient, just to be patient. Because of his injuries, Gregor had lost much of his mobility, probably permanently. He had been reduced to the condition of an ancient invalid, and it took him long, long minutes to crawl across his room. Crawling over the ceiling was out of the question. But this deterioration of his condition was fully, in his opinion, made up for by the door to the living room being left open every evening. He got into the habit of closely watching it for one or two hours before it was opened, and then, lying in the darkness of his room where he could not be seen from the living room, he could watch the family in the light of the dinner table and listen to their conversation, with everyone's permission, in a way, and thus quite differently from before. They no longer held the lively conversations of earlier times, of course, the ones that Gregor always thought about with longing when he was tired and getting into the damp bed in some small hotel room. All of them were usually very quiet nowadays. Soon after dinner, his father would go to sleep in his chair. His mother and sister would urge each other to be quiet. His mother, bent deeply under the lamp, would sew fancy underwear for a fashion shop. His sister, who had taken a sales job, learned shorthand and French in the evenings so that she might be able to get a better position later on. Sometimes his father would wake up and say to Gregor's mother, "'You're doing so much sewing again today.' as if he did not know he'd been dozing, and he would go back to sleep again while his mother and sister would exchange a tired grin. With a kind of stubbornness, Gregor's father refused to take off his uniform even at home. While his nightgown hung unused on its peg, Gregor's father would slumber where he was, fully dressed, as if always ready to serve and expecting to hear the voice of his superior even here. The uniform had not been new to start with, but as a result of this it slowly became even shabbier despite the effort of Gregor's mother and his sister to look after it. Gregor would often spend the whole evening looking at all the stains on his coat, with its gold buttons always kept polished and shiny, while the old man in it would sleep, highly uncomfortable but peaceful. As soon as it struck ten, Gregor's mother would speak gently to his father to wake him and try to persuade him to go to bed, as he couldn't sleep properly where he was, and he really had to get his sleep if he was to be up at six to go to work. But since he had been in work, he had become more obstinate and would always insist on staying longer at the table, even though he regularly fell asleep and it was then harder than ever to persuade him to exchange the chair for his bed. Then, however much mother and sister would importune him with little reproaches and warnings, 
he would keep slowly shaking his head for a quarter of an hour with his eyes closed and refuse to get up. Gregor's mother would tug at his sleeve, whisper endearments into his ear. Gregor's sister would leave her work to help her mother, but nothing would have any effect on him. He would just sink deeper into his chair. Only when the two women took him under the arms would he abruptly open his eyes, look at them one after the other, and say, What a life! This is what peace I get in my old age! And supported by the two women, he would lift himself carefully up, as if he were carrying the greatest load himself, let the women take him to the door, send them off, and carry on by himself while Gregor's mother would throw down her needle and his sister her pen so that they could run after his father and continue being of help to him. Who, in this tired and overworked family, would have had time to give more attention to Gregor than was absolutely necessary? The household budget became even smaller. So now the maid was dismissed. An enormous, thick-boned charwoman with white hair that flapped about her head came every morning and evening to do the heaviest work. Everything else was looked after by Gregor's mother on top of the large amount of sewing work she did. Gregor even learned, listening to the evening conversation, about what price they had hoped for, that several items of jewelry belonging to the family had been sold, even though both mother and sister had been very fond of wearing them at functions and celebrations. But the loudest complaint was that although the flat was much too big for their present circumstances, they could not move out of it. There was no imaginable way of transferring Gregor to the new address. He could see quite well, though, that there were more reasons than consideration for him that made it difficult for them to move. It would have been quite easy to transport him in any suitable crate with a few air holes in it. The main thing holding the family back from the decision to move was much more to do with their total despair and the thought that they had been struck with a misfortune unlike anything experienced by anyone else they knew or were related to. They carried out absolutely everything that the world expects from poor people. Gregor's father brought bank employees their breakfasts. His mother sacrificed herself by washing clothes for strangers. His sister ran back and forth behind her desk at the behest of the customers. But they just did not have the strength to do any more. And the injury in Gregor's back began to hurt as much as when it was new. After they had come back from taking his father to bed, Gregor's mother and sister would now leave their work where it was and sit close together, cheek to cheek. His mother would point to Gregor's room and say, Close that door, Greta. And then, when he was in the dark again, they would sit in the next room, and their tears would mingle, or they would simply sit there, staring dry-eyed at the table. Gregor hardly slept at all, either night or day. Sometimes he would think of taking over the family's affairs, just like before, the next time the door was opened. He had long forgotten about his boss and the chief clerk, but they would appear again in his thoughts, the salesman and the apprentices, that stupid tea-boy, two or three friends from other businesses, one of the chambermaids from a provincial hotel, a tender memory that appeared and disappeared again, a cashier from the hat-shop for whom his attention had been serious but too slow, all of them appeared to him, mixed together with strangers and others he had forgotten. But instead of helping him and his family, they were all of them inaccessible, 
and he was glad when they disappeared. Other times, he was not at all in the mood to look after his family. He was filled with a simple rage about the lack of attention he was shown, and although he could think of nothing he could have wanted, he made plans of how he could get into the pantry where he could take all the things he was entitled to, even if he was not hungry. Gregor's sister no longer thought about how she could please him, but would hurriedly push some food or other into his room with her foot before she rushed to work in the morning, and at midday, and in the evenings, she would sweep it all away again with the broom, indifferent as to what had been eaten, or, more often than not, had been left totally untouched. She still cleared up the room in the evening, but now she could not have been quicker about it. Smears of dirt were left on the walls, here and there were little balls of dust and filth. At first, Gregor went into one of the worst of these places when his sister arrived as a reproach to her. But he could have stayed there for weeks without his sister doing anything about it. She could see the dirt as well as he could, but she had simply decided to leave him to it. At the same time, she became touchy in a way that was quite new for her, and which everyone in the family understood. Cleaning up Gregor's room was for her and her alone. Gregor's mother once did thoroughly clean his room and needed to use several bucketfuls of water to do it, although that much dampness also made Gregor ill and he lay flat on the couch, bitter and immobile. But his mother was to be punished still more for what she had done, as hardly had his sister arrived home in the evening that she noticed the change in Gregor's room and, highly aggravated, ran back into the living room where, Despite her mother's raised and imploring hands, she broke into convulsive tears. Her father, of course, was startled out of the chair, and the two parents looked on astonished and helpless. Then they, too, became agitated. Gregor's father, standing to the right of his mother, accused her of not leaving the cleaning of Gregor's room to his sister. From her left, Gregor's sister screamed at her that she was never to clean Gregor's room again while his mother tried to draw his father, who was beside himself with anger, into the bedroom. His sister, quaking with tears, thumbed on the table with her small fist, and Gregor hissed in anger that no one had even thought of closing the door to save him the sight of all this noise. Gregor's sister was exhausted from going out to work, and looking after Gregor as she had done before was even more work for her but even so his mother ought certainly not to have taken her place. Gregor, on the other hand, ought not to be neglected. Now, though, the charwoman was here. This elderly widow, with a robust bone structure that made her able to withstand the hardest of things in her long life, wasn't really repelled by Gregor. Just by chance, one day, Rather than any real curiosity, she opened the door to Gregor's room and found herself face to face with him. He was taken totally by surprise. No one was chasing him, but he began to rush to and fro while she just stood there in amazement with her hands crossed in front of her. From then on, she never failed to open the door slightly every evening and morning and look briefly in on him. At first she would call to him, as she did so with words that she probably considered friendly, such as, Come on then, you old dung beetle, or Look at the old dung beetle there. Gregor never responded to being spoken to in that way, 
but just remained where he was without moving, as if the door had never been opened. If only they had told this charwoman to clean up his room every day instead of letting her disturb him for no reason whenever she felt like it. One day, early in the morning, while the heavy rain struck the window panes, perhaps indicating that spring was coming, she began to speak to him in that way once again. Gregor was so resentful of it that he started to move towards her. He was slow and infirm, but it was like a kind of attack. Instead of being afraid, the charwoman just lifted up one of the chairs from near the door and stood there with her mouth open, clearly intending not to close her mouth until the chair in her hand had been slammed down on Gregor's back. "'Aren't you coming any closer, then?' she asked when Gregor turned round again, and she calmly put the chair back in the corner. Gregor had almost entirely stopped eating. Only if he happened to find himself next to the food that had been prepared for him, he might take some of it into his mouth to play with it, leave it there a few hours, and then, more often than not, spit it out again. At first, he thought it was distress at the state of his room that stopped him eating, but he had soon got used to the changes made there. They had got into the habit of putting things into this room that had no room for anywhere else, and there were now many such things as one of the rooms in the flat had been rented out to three gentlemen. These earnest gentlemen, all three of them had full beards, as Gregor leaned peeking through the crack in the door one day, were painfully insistent on things being tidy. This meant not only in their own room, but since they had taken a room in this establishment, in the entire flat, and especially the kitchen. Unnecessary clutter was something they could not tolerate, especially if it was dirty. They had, moreover, brought most of their own furnishings and equipment with them. For this reason, many of the things had become superfluous, which, although they could not be sold, the family did not wish to discard. All these things found their way into Gregor's room. The dustbins from the kitchen found their way in there, too, the charwoman was always in a hurry, and anything she couldn't use for the time being she would just chuck in there. He, unfortunately, would usually see no more than the object in the hand that held it. The woman most likely meant to fetch the things back out again when she had the time and the opportunity, or to throw everything out in one go. But what actually happened was that they were left where they landed when they had first been thrown, unless Gregor made his way through the junk and moved it somewhere else. At first he moved it because, with no other free room where he could crawl about, he was forced to. But later on he came to enjoy it, although moving about in that way left him sad and tired to death, and he would remain immobile for hours afterwards. The gentlemen who rented the room would sometimes take their evening meal at home in the living room that was used by everyone, and so the door to his room was often kept closed in the evening. But Gregor found it easy to give up having the door open. He had, after all, often failed to make use of it when it was open, and, without the family having noticed it, laying in his room in the darkest corner. One time, though, the charwoman left the door to the living room slightly open, and it remained open when the gentleman who rented the room came in the evening and the light was put on. They sat up at the table where, formerly, Gregor had taken his meals with his father and mother 
They unfolded the service and picked up their knives and forks. Gregor's mother immediately appeared in the doorway with a dish of meat, and soon behind came his sister with a dish piled higher with potatoes. The food was steaming and filled the room with its smell. The gentlemen bent over the dishes set in front of them as if they wanted to test the food before eating it, and the gentleman in the middle, who seemed to count as an authority for the other two, did indeed cut off a piece of meat while it was still in its dish, clearly wishing to establish whether it was sufficiently cooked or whether it should be sent back to the kitchen. It was to his satisfaction, and Gregor's mother and sister, who had been looking on anxiously, began to breathe again and smiled. The family themselves ate in the kitchen. Nonetheless, Gregor's father came into the living room before he went into the kitchen, bowed once with his cap in his hand, and did his round of the table. The gentlemen stood as one, and mumbled something into their beards. Then, once they were alone, they ate in near-perfect silence. It seemed remarkable to Gregor that above all the various noises of eating their chewing teeth could still be heard, as if they wanted to show Gregor that you need teeth in order to eat, and it was not possible to perform anything with jaws that are toothless, however nice they might be. "'I'd like to eat something,' said Gregor anxiously, "'but not anything like their eating. "'They do feed themselves, and here I am dying.' Throughout all this time Gregor could not remember having heard the violin being played, but this evening it began to be heard from the kitchen. The three gentlemen had already finished their meal. The one in the middle had produced a newspaper, given a page to each of the others, and now they leant back in their chairs reading them and smoking. When the violin began playing they became attentive, stood up and went on tiptoe over to the door of the hallway where they stood pressed against each other. Someone must have heard them in the kitchen as Gregor's father called out, is the playing perhaps unpleasant for the gentleman? We can stop it straight away. On the contrary, said the middle gentleman, would the young lady not like to come in and play for us in here, where it is, after all, much more cozy and comfortable? Oh, yes, we'd love to, called back Gregor's father, as if he had been the violin player himself. The gentleman stepped back into the room and waited. Gregor's father soon appeared with the music stand, his mother with the music, and his sister with the violin. She calmly prepared everything for her to begin playing. His parents, who had never rented a room out before, and therefore showed an exaggerated courtesy towards the three gentlemen, did not even dare to sit on their own chairs. His father leant against the door with his right hand pushed in between two buttons on his uniform coat. His mother, though, was offered a seat by one of the gentlemen, and sat, leaving the chair where the gentleman happened to have placed it, out of the way, in a corner. His sister began to play. Father and mother paid close attention, one on each side, to the movement of her hands. Drawn in by the playing, Gregor had dared to come forward a little, and already had his head in the living room. Before, he had taken great pride in how considerate he was, but now it hardly occurred to him that he had become so thoughtless about the others. What's more, there was now all the more reason to keep himself hidden as he was covered in the dust that lay everywhere in his room and flew up at the slightest moment. 
He carried threads, hairs, and remains of food about on his back and sides. He was much too indifferent to everything now to lay on his back and wipe himself on the carpet like he had used to several times a day. And despite this condition, he was not too shy to move forward a little onto the immaculate floor of the living room. No one noticed him, though. The family was totally preoccupied with the violin playing. At first, the three gentlemen had put their hands in their pockets and come up far too close behind the music stand to look at all those notes being played. And they must have disturbed Gregor's sister. But soon, in contrast with the family, they withdrew back to the window with their heads sunk and talked to each other at half volume. And they stayed by the window while Gregor's father observed them anxiously. It really now seemed very obvious that they had expected to hear some beautiful or entertaining violin playing, but had been disappointed, that they had enough of the whole performance, and it was only now, out of politeness, that they allowed their peace to be disturbed. It was especially unnerving, by the way they all blew the smoke from their cigarettes upward with their mouth and noses. Yet Gregor's sister was playing so beautifully— her face was lent to one side following the lines of music with a careful and melancholy expression. Gregor crawled a little further forward, keeping his head so close to the ground so that he could meet her eyes if the chance came. Was he an animal if music could captivate him so? It seemed to him that he was being shown the way to the unknown nourishment he had been yearning for. He was determined to make his way forward to his sister and tug at her skirt to show her she might come into his room with her violin, as no one appreciated her playing here as much as he would. He never wanted to let her out of his room, not while he lived anyway. But his shocking appearance should, for once, be of some use to him. He wanted to be at every door of his room at once to hiss and spit at the attackers. His sister should not be forced to stay with him, though but to stay of her own free will. She would sit beside him on the couch with her ear bent down to him while he told her how he had always intended to send her to the conservatory, how he would have told everyone about it last Christmas. Had Christmas really come and gone already? If this misfortune hadn't gotten away and refused to let anyone dissuade him from it. On hearing all this, his sister would break out in tears of emotion and Gregor would climb up her shoulder and kiss her neck, which, since she had been going out to work, she had kept free without any necklace or collar. "'Mr. Samsa!' shouted the middle gentleman at Gregor's father, pointing, without wasting any more words, with his forefinger at Gregor as he slowly moved forward. The violin went silent. The middle of the three gentlemen first smiled at his two friends, shaking his head, and then looked back at Gregor. His father seemed to think it more important to calm the three gentlemen before driving Gregor out, even though they were not at all upset and seemed to think Gregor was more entertaining than the violin playing had been. He rushed up to them with his arms spread out and attempted to drive them back into their room at the same time as try to block their view of Gregor with his body. Now they did become a little annoyed and it was not clear whether it was his father's behavior that annoyed them or the drawing realization that they had a neighbor like Gregor in the next room without knowing it. They asked Gregor's father for explanations, 
raised their arms like he had, tugged excitedly at their beards, and moved back towards their room very slowly. Meanwhile, Gregor's sister had overcome the despair she had fallen into while her playing was suddenly interrupted. She had let her hands drop and let violin and bow hang limply for a while, but continued to look at the music as if still playing. But then she suddenly pulled herself together, lay the instrument on her mother's lap, who still laboriously struggled for breath where she was, and ran into the next room which, under pressure from her father, the three gentlemen were more quickly moving towards. Under his sister's experienced hand, the pillow and covers on the bed flew up and were put into order, and she had already finished making the beds and slipped out again before the three gentlemen had reached the room. Gregor's father seemed so obsessed with what he was doing that he forgot all the respect he owed to his tenants. He urged them and pressed them until, when he was already at the door of the room, the middle of the three gentlemen shouted like thunder and stamped his foot and thereby brought Gregor's father to a halt. "'I declare here and now,' he said, raising his hand with glancing at Gregor's mother and sister to gain their attention too that with regard to the repugnant conditions that prevail in this flat and with this family, here he looked briefly but decisively at the floor, I give immediate notice on my room. For the days that I have been living here I will, of course, pay nothing at all. On the contrary, I will consider whether to proceed with some kind of action for damages from you, and believe me it would be very easy to set out the grounds for such action." He was silent and looked straight ahead as if waiting for something. And indeed, his two friends joined in with the words, and we also immediately give notice. With that, he took hold of the door handle and slammed the door. Gregor's father staggered back into his seat, feeling his way up with his hands, and fell into it. It looked as if he was stretching himself out for his usual evening nap, but from the uncontrolled way his head kept nodding, it could be seen that he was not sleeping at all. Throughout all this, Gregor had lain still where the three gentlemen had first seen him. His disappointment at the failure of his plan, and perhaps also because he was weak from hunger, made it impossible for him to move. He was sure that everyone would turn on him at any moment, and he waited. He was not even startled out of his state when the violin on his mother's lap fell from her trembling fingers and landed loudly on the floor. Father, mother, said his sister, hitting the table with her hands as introduction, we can't carry on like this. Maybe you can't see it, but I can. I don't want to call this monster my brother. All I can say is we have to try and get rid of it. We've done all that's humanly possible to look after it and be patient. I don't think anyone could accuse us of doing anything wrong. She's absolutely right, said Gregor's father to himself. His mother, who still had not had time to catch her breath, began to cough dully. Her hands held out in front of her and a deranged expression in her eyes. Gregor's sister rushed to his mother and put her hand on her forehead. Her words seemed to give Gregor's father some more definite ideas. He sat up, played with his uniform cap between the plates left by the three gentlemen after their meal, and occasionally looked down at Gregor as he lay there immobile. "'We have to try and get rid of it,' said Gregor's sister, now speaking only to her father, as her mother was too occupied with coughing to listen. 
It'll be the death of both of you. I can see it coming. We can't all work as hard as we have to and then come home and be tortured like this. We can't endure it. I can't endure it any more. And she broke out so heavily in tears. They flowed down the face of her mother, and she wiped them away with mechanical hand movements. My child, said her father, with sympathy and obvious understanding, what are we to do? His sister just shrugged her shoulders as a sign of the helplessness and tears that had taken hold of her, displacing her earlier certainty. If he could just understand us, said his father, almost as a question. His sister shook her hand vigorously through her tears as a sign that of that there was no question. If he could just understand us, repeated Gregor's father, closing his eyes in acceptance of his sister's certainty that that was quite impossible. Then perhaps we could come to some kind of arrangement with him. But as it is, it's got to go, shouted his sister. That's the only way, father. You've got to get rid of the idea that's Gregor. We have only harmed ourselves by believing it for so long. How can that be Gregor? If it were Gregor, he would have seen long ago that it's not possible for human beings to live with an animal like that, and he would have gone of his own free will. We wouldn't have to bother any more then, but we could carry on with our lives and remember him with respect. As it is, this animal is persecuting us. It's driven out our tenants. It obviously wants to take over the whole flat and force us to sleep on the streets. Father, look, just look, she suddenly screamed. He's starting again. In her alarm, which was totally beyond Gregor's comprehension, his sister even abandoned his mother as she pushed herself vigorously out of her chair, as if more willing to sacrifice her own mother than stay anywhere near Gregor. She rushed over behind her father, who had become excited merely because she was, and stood up, half-raising his hands in front of Gregor's sister, as if to protect her. But Gregor had no intention of frightening anyone, least of all his sister. All he had done was begin to turn round so that he could go back into his room, although that was in itself quite startling, as his pain-racked condition meant that turning round required a great deal of effort, and he was using his head to help himself do it repeatedly raising it and striking it against the floor. He stopped and looked around. They seemed to have realized his good intention and had only been briefly alarmed. Now they all looked at him in unhappy silence. His mother lay in her chair with her legs stretched out and pressed against each other, her eyes nearly closed with exhaustion. His sister sat next to his father with her arms around his neck. Maybe now they'll let me turn round thought Gregor, and went back to work. He could not help panting loudly with the effort and had some times to stop and take a rest. No one was making him rush any more. Everything was left up to him. As soon as he had finally finished turning round, he began to move straight ahead. He was amazed at the great distance that separated him from his room, and he could not understand how he had covered that distance in his weak state a little while before and almost without noticing it. He concentrated on crawling as fast as he could and hardly noticed that there was not a word, not any cry from his family to distract him. He did not turn his head until he had reached the doorway. He did not turn it all the way round as he felt his neck becoming stiff, but it was nonetheless enough to see that nothing behind him had changed, only his sister had stood up. 
With his last glance he saw that his mother had now fallen completely asleep. He was hardly inside his room before the door was hurriedly shut, bolted, and locked. The sudden noise behind Gregor so startled him that his little legs collapsed under him. It was his sister who had been in so much of a rush. She had been standing there, waiting, and sprung forward lightly. Gregor had not heard her coming at all, and as she turned the key in the lock she said loudly to her parents, "'At last!' "'What now, then?' Gregor asked himself as he looked round in the darkness. He soon made the discovery that he could no longer move at all. This was no surprise to him. It seemed rather that being able to actually move around on those spindly little legs until then was unnatural. He also felt relatively comfortable. It's true that his entire body was aching, but the pain seemed to be slowly getting weaker and weaker and would finally disappear altogether. He could already hardly feel the decayed apple in his back or the inflamed area around it, which was entirely covered in white dust. He thought back of his family with emotion and love. If it was possible, he felt that he must go away even more strongly than his sister. He remained in this state of empty and peaceful rumination until he heard the clock tower strike three in the morning. He watched as it slowly began to get light everywhere outside the window, too. Then, without willing it, his head sank down completely, and his last breath flowed weakly from his nostrils. When the cleaner came in the early morning, they'd often asked her not to keep slamming the doors, but with her strength and in her hurry she still did, so that everyone in the flat knew when she'd arrived, and from then on it was impossible to sleep in peace, she made her usual brief look in on Gregor, and at first found nothing special. She thought he was laying there so still on purpose, playing the martyr. She attributed all possible understanding to him. She happened to be holding the long broom in her hand, so she tried to tickle Gregor with it from the doorway. When she had no success with that, she tried to make a nuisance of herself and poked at him a little and only when she found she could shove him across the floor with no resistance at all did she really start to pay attention. She soon realized what had happened, opened her eyes wide, whistled to herself, but did not waste time to yank open the bedroom doors and shout loudly into the darkness of the bedrooms, "'Come out and have a look at this. It's dead. Just lying there, stone dead.' Mr. and Mrs. Semsa sat upright there in their marriage bed and had to make an effort to get over the shock caused by the cleaner before they could grasp what she was saying. But then, each from their own side, they hurried out of bed. Mr. Semsa threw the blanket over his shoulders. Mrs. Semsa just came out in her nightdress, and that is how they went into Gregor's room. On the way, they opened the door to the living room where Greta had been sleeping since the three gentlemen had moved in, she was fully dressed, as if she had never been asleep, and the paleness of her face seemed to confirm this. "'Dead?' asked Mrs. Semsa, looking at the charwoman inquiringly, even though she could have checked for herself and could have known even without checking. "'That's what I said,' replied the cleaner, and to prove it she gave Gregor's body another shove with the broom, sending it sideways across the floor. Mrs. Samsa made a movement as if she wanted to hold back the broom, but did not complete it. "'Now then,' said Mr. Samsa, "'let's give thanks to God for that. 
he crossed himself, and the three women followed his example. Greta, who had not taken her eyes from the corpse, said, Just look how thin he was. He didn't eat anything for so long. The food came out again just the same as when it went in. Gregor's body was indeed completely dried up and flat. They had not seen it until then, but now he was not lifted up on his little legs, nor did he do anything to make them look away. Greta, come up with us in here for a little while, said Mrs. Samsa with a pained smile, and Greta followed her parents into the bedroom, but not without looking back at the body. The cleaner shut the door and opened the window wide. Although it was still early in the morning, the fresh air had something of warmth mixed in it. It was already the end of March, after all. The three gentlemen stepped out of their room and looked round in amazement for their breakfast. They had been forgotten about. "'Where is our breakfast?' the middle gentleman asked the cleaner irritably. She just put a finger on her lips and made a quick and silent sign to the men that they might like to come into Gregor's room. They did so, and stood around Gregor's corpse with their hands in the pockets of their well-worn coats. It was now quite light in the room. Then the door to the bedroom opened and Mr. Samsa appeared in his uniform with his wife on one arm and his daughter on the other. All of them had been crying a little. Greta now and then pressed her face against her father's arm. "'Leave my home now,' said Mr. Samsa, indicating the door and without letting the women from him. "'What do you mean?' asked the middle of the three gentlemen, somewhat disconcerted, and he smiled sweetly. The other two held their hands behind their backs and continually rubbed them together in gleeful anticipation of a loud quarrel which only could end in their favor. "'I mean what I said,' answered Mr. Samsa, and, with his two companions, went in a straight line towards the man. At first he stood there still, looking at the ground, as if the contents of his head were rearranging themselves into new positions. "'All right, we'll go then,' he said, and looked up at Mr. Samsa, as if he had been suddenly overcome with humility, and wanted permission again from Mr. Samsa for his decision." Mr. Samsa merely opened his eyes wide and briefly nodded to him several times. At that, and without delay, the man actually did take long strides into the front hallway. His two friends had stopped rubbing their hands some time before and had been listening to what was being said. Now they jumped off after their friend as if taken with a sudden fear that Mr. Samsa might go into the hallway in front of them and break the connection with their leader. Once there, all three took their hats from the stand, took their sticks from the holder, bowed without a word, and left the premises. Mr. Samsa and the two women followed them out onto the landing, but they had no reason to mistrust the men's intentions, and as they leaned over the landing, they saw how the three gentlemen made slow but steady progress down the many steps. As they turned the corner on each floor, they disappeared and would reappear a few moments later. The further down they went, the more that the Samsa family lost interest in them. When a butcher's boy, proud of posture with his tray on his head, passed them on his way up and came nearer than they were, Mr. Samsa and the woman came away from the landing and went, as if relieved, back into the flat. They decided the best way to make use of that day was for relaxation and to go out for a walk. Not only had they earned a break from work, but they were in serious need of it. So they sat at the table and wrote three letters of excusal, Mr. Samsa to his employers, Mrs. Samsa to her contractor, 
and Greta to her principal. The cleaner came in while they were writing to tell them she was going. She'd finished her work for that morning. The three of them at first just nodded without looking up from what they were writing, and it was only when the cleaner still did not seem to want to leave that they looked up in irritation. Well, asked Mr. Samsa, the charwoman stood in the doorway with a smile on her face as if she had some tremendous good news to report, but would only do it if she was clearly asked to. The almost vertical little ostrich feather on her hat, which had been a source of irritation to Mr. Sansa all the time she had been working for them, swayed gently in all directions. "'What is it that you want, then?' asked Mrs. Sansa, whom the cleaner had the most respect for. "'Yes,' she answered, and broke into a friendly laugh that made her unable to speak straight away. "'Well, then, that thing in there, you needn't worry about how you're going to get rid of it. That's all been sorted out.' Mrs. Samsa and Greta bent down over their letters, as if intent on continuing with what they were writing. Mr. Samsa saw that the cleaner wanted to start describing everything in detail, but with outstretched hand he made it quite clear that she was not to. So— as she was prevented from telling them all about it, she suddenly remembered what a hurry she was in, and, clearly peeved, called out, Cheerio, then, everyone, and turned round sharply and left, slamming the door terribly as she went. Tonight she gets sacked, said Mr. Samsa, but he received no reply from either his wife or his daughter, as the charwoman seemed to have destroyed the peace they had only just gained. They got up and went over to the window where they remained with their arms around each other. Mr. Samsa twisted round in his chair to look at them and sat there watching for a while. Then he called out, Come here, then. Let's forget about all that old stuff, shall we? Come and give me a bit of attention. The two women immediately did as he said, hurrying over to him where they kissed him and hugged him, and they quickly finished their letters. After that, the three of them left the flat together, which was something they had not done for months, and took the tram out to the open country outside of town. They had the tram filled with warm sunshine all to themselves. They leant back comfortably on their seats. They discussed their prospects and found that on closer examination they were not at all bad. Until then, they had never asked each other about their work, but all three had jobs which were very good and held particularly good promise for the future. The greatest improvement for the time being, of course, would be achieved quite easily by moving house. What they needed now was a flat that was smaller and cheaper than the current one which had been chosen by Gregor, one that was in a better location and, most of all, more practical. All the time, Greta was becoming livelier. With all the worry they had been having of late, her cheeks had become pale, but while they were talking, Mr. and Mrs. Samsa were struck almost simultaneously, with the thought of how their daughter was blossoming into a well-built and beautiful young lady. They became quieter. Just from each other's glance, and almost without knowing it, they agreed that it would soon be time to find a good man for her. And, as if in confirmation of their new dreams and good intentions, as soon as they reached their destination, Greta was the first to get up and stretch out her young body. That was Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, Part 3, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship 
that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, they have not yet been discovered. They are very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology to communicate even in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to www.theboojum.org. Thank you, Seth. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.